he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Jose, and Judah, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Shall we pray, gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for the privilege of coming into your presence. Lord, we are not worthy to stand in the presence of Almighty God, Maker of heaven and earth, who is thrice holy. Father, but you call us into your presence. And you have made us and enabled a way into your presence. You have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to seek and save the lost, to redeem us from the darkness and the captivity and the shame and the guilt of our sin. You have purified us and cleansed us by your Son's blood and brought us into your holy presence. For you are holy, God, but you are gracious and you are merciful. Father, we confess, though, that at times... The things of this world distract us from the source of infinite joy, which is God alone. Our worries overwhelm us about what will happen tomorrow, what will happen next week. How will I make ends meet? Can I even find the ends? Why is this happening? We are overwhelmed. And we trust what our eyes can see and what our minds can understand rather than trusting a God who is perfectly wise and all-powerful and working all things according to the purposes of his good. And he has promised us that those who are united to Christ by faith, he is working all things, all things good and all things evil for their good. Father, we confess that we don't trust you at times. We trust ourselves. We don't trust your word. We trust what we understand, what we can see, and what we can touch. But we are thankful that you are a gracious and forgiving God. You don't treat us the way we deserve, but you have lavished upon your grace upon us. Father, we come before you and we lift up the needs of our congregation. Those who are sick. Those who are struggling with the darkness in their mind depression, discouragement, fear, worry, physical maladies and, and questions. Father, we lift them up to you because you know and you provide. We confess that we do not know and we cannot provide. Father, as we come to you, we pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would trust you, that we would not poison our souls with unbelief, that we would trust the God who is good and working all things for good, the God in whom we have satisfaction, 
when we seek his glory and his kingdom, he promises all these things, what we will wear and what we will eat and where we will live and how we will make ends meet. He will take care of those things. Father, teach us to trust you. Give us eyes to see in your word and ears to hear your voice of the good shepherd and hearts that love. In God's precious and Christ's precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. A child is born in an obscure village. He's brought up in another obscure village. He works into a carpenter shop until he's about 30, and then for three brief years, he's an itinerant preacher, proclaiming a message and living a life. He never writes a book, he never holds office, he never raises an army. He never has a family of his own, he never owns a home, he never goes to college. He never uh, travels 200 miles from the place where he was born that we know of. He gathers a little group of friends about him and teaches them his way of life. When he was still a young man, the tide of popular feeling turns against him. One denies him. One betrays him. He's turned over to his enemies. He goes through the mockery of a child. He is nailed to a cross between two common ordinary thieves. And when he is dead, he is laid in a borrowed grave by the kindness of his friends. Today we look back across 2,000 years and ask what kind of trail has he left across the centuries? One solitary life. And the author writes, when we try to sum up his influence, all the armies that marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned are absolutely insignificant in their influence on mankind compared to with this one solitary life. When you look and you read through the book of Mark, you are astounded by incredible things. This man who came from nowhere, from nobody, and he was able to command the winds and the wind to cast out de- an army of demons that cowered at his feet to uh, restore broken lives and hands and bodies. And most people disregarded him. Most people failed to see the significance of who he was and what he was doing, including his own disciples. Even to the very end of Mark, he raises from the dead, the people get scared and they run because they have no understanding of who this is that Mark is showing us. Why is that? I believe, and as we will see here in Mark chapter 6, it's the ordinary nature of Jesus' life. The ordinariness of Jesus that had an extraordinary impact on history. People will look at Jesus and say he wasn't powerful enough, he wasn't influential enough, he wasn't accomplished enough, he was just too ordinary and they reject him. But I want you to tell you today, 
and as Scripture will tell us, is this. Those that reject Jesus will find themselves rejected by God. Those who reject Jesus will find themselves rejected by God. Now, the way we put this together this morning in these just six short verses is that unbelief blinds you to Christ's significance. Unbelief blinds you to Christ's significance. And also, unbelief renders you unresponsible to God's work in salvation. It, it renders you uh, unresponsive to God's work in salvation. And I know there's a lot. We'll catch up. We'll review. Unbelief cuts you off from the power of God. Blinds you to Christ's significance. It makes you unresponsive to God's work. And then also, it cuts you off from the power of God. So in verses 1 through 3, we begin by seeing the unbelief blinds you to Christ's significance. Notice in verses 1 and verse 2. And Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did the man, this man get these things? What is this wisdom that is given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Jesus, and they're beginning to learn as you read through the book of Mark and put your eyes through the eyes, through the head of the readers here. Jesus was like, unlike anybody who lived in Galilee, nobody came through and had done things and said things like Jesus did. Crowds sat in amazement and astonished during his teaching, and they were continually amazed by what Jesus did next. His power over nature and over demons. His power over disease and over death. He could cleanse lepers. He raised paralytics. He healed diseases. He calmed the winds and the waves. He cast out an army of demons. And He raised the dead. Nobody had done anything like this before. And uh, as news travels fast... Reports were circulating all through the surrounding towns and villages and causing massive crowds that scrambled for, to hear this mighty miracle worker from Galilee. This, this incredible person who that his very touch uh, heals people and the crowds overwhelmed him. And now for a, for a brief Sabbath, a rest for himself, his body, he returns home to Nazareth. Nazareth. Yet it's odd the reception that Jesus gets in his hometown. Because rather than Nazareth seeing him and celebrating this local boy made good, he was received with suspicion. And he was received with reproach. His own hometown, the people who he grew up with, were blinded to the significance of the boy who made it big. Why? Well, I think there's two reasons that that shows us that Jesus was just too ordinary and that Jesus was just a little too familiar. Notice verse 3 at the beginning that Jesus was just too ordinary. They immediately says that about hearing the reports and maybe a few of them went off to see, go find out really what's going on. 
Is this not the carpenter? When I think of a carpenter, I think of my father and my grandfather who are able to make exquisite things from wood. Beautiful things that you sit back and you're like, oh, this is amazing. Tables and chairs and boxes, beautiful things, intricate things, and valuable things. So when I think of Jesus, and probably some of you do, when we think of him as a carpenter, we figure Jesus had this shop right down Nazareth off of Main Street that it was filled with the most amazing pieces of woodworking, things that were fit for royalty. But when you begin to start to look at the reality of the cultural background, because you have to look through eyes of the original readers from the original author, you begin to realize that a first century carpenter was very different than our picture of carpenters now. A carpenter really could have been anyone who worked with wood or metal or stone. Jesus would have been a handyman who could really probably fix anything crafting plows to yokes, anything that was made of wood, furniture and cupboards, stools and benches. He probably would have been able to build a small building and especially work on the rafters and the windows and the lattices and the bolts of the doors, even making doors. He would have been a a, a strong man with strong hands, a, a technical eye, and a resourceful mind to be able to fix something with very rudimentary uh, uh, resources. And so when the residents of Nazareth looked and saw Jesus and heard these reports, they were like, the carpenter? That Jesus? You don't mean somebody else. Because they heard the wisdom of Jesus and the mighty works of Jesus, and they said people like Jesus don't know and don't teach the wisdom of God. People like Jesus don't do the things that Jesus did. You see, the problem is that Jesus didn't measure up to their expectations. He didn't fit into their categories. So they looked at one another. He said, the guy who fixed our leaky boat is the one who calmed the winds and the waves. You know, that guy who a few years ago who repaired that old plow is the one who made a paralytic rise and walk. The one who made our front door is now teaching us how to enter the kingdom of God. Who does he think he is? He's a carpenter. He's not a scribe. He doesn't study the law of God day and night. He's not sitting under the feet of a great rabbi. Does he even know this stuff? The scribes were the ones who devoted their lives to study Scripture. They taught the knowledge of God and His ways. Not common, ordinary men whose days were spent from dawn to dusk fixing things and repairing broken household items. You're telling me the carpenter is the one who did this. They were blinded to the significance of Jesus because Jesus was too familiar to him. They were, he was too common. Notice the familiarity that blinded them to Jesus. A little bit further in verse 3. The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and not, are not his sisters with us? 
It's hard to tell, but I believe this sentence has a twinge of disparagement. A first century man was always referred to as the son of his father, not the son of his mother. Now, scholars disagree, and I went back and forth on this as well, but as you're reading through this, they're either referring to Jesus as the son of Mary because as local people who knew Jesus' story, they knew that Joseph was not really Jesus' father. Or they knew the reality that Joseph had been dead for some time. They knew his family. They knew his brothers and sisters. His family was from Nazareth. And probably like Nathaniel said in the book of John, can anything good come from Nazareth? We're just simple people. We're, uh, we're living out in country Israel. The, really what's happening is down in Jerusalem. We are just the backwater Israel, and that is a backwater woman is his mother. She's a no-name woman. He's a no-name carpenter. The townspeople thought they knew the real story about Jesus. He's just the kid from down the block. He's nothing special. He's just like one of us. See, to ne- a- amen, Sydney. Um, he was too ordinary and too familiar to be doing what he was doing. Men like Jesus were not qualified to speak with such wisdom and such great deeds. And honestly, by and large, they were right. Carpenters don't do that. They fix things. They don't teach us about the king. They don't declare the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. They say you need a new door. Your plow is broken. Go buy a new one. See, the problem is they were asking the wrong questions. Notice the questions they were asking in verse 2. Where did he, this man get these things? Where was this wisdom given? How are such mighty works being done through him? They judged what their, by what their eyes could see and what their minds could understand. They wanted to the, know the source of Jesus' power, not the significance of what God was doing through Jesus. What they should have been asking is, carpenters don't do this kind of thing. What does this mean that's the whole point with miracles right miracles are not run-of-the-mill that happen all the time that's why they're miracles and when we see a miracle happen in scripture we need to ask the question why did this miracle happen what significance and what does it mean He was not like his brothers. He was not like the other carpenters. He, as Mark tells us in the first verse, he was the anointed son of God and he was working and accomplishing salvation in their midst. And sadly, their unbelief blinded them to the God who is hidden in plain sights. Because Jesus didn't meet their faulty expectations. And the end of verse 3, it says, they took offense at him. Oshenbach, how do you see Jesus? Or better yet, what do you value and honor in Jesus? See, society desires prestigious leaders and renowned visionaries, yet God chose to come as an ordinary carpenter. 
He wouldn't have won the election this year. We want wealthy people. We want attractive people. We want smart people. We want uh, people that will tell it like it is. We want glamorous and glory and prestigious and powerful people. Nobody votes for a carpenter. They're too blue-collar. Society values elite athletes and scholars with PhDs and more behind their name, and artists who can make beautiful music or beautiful scenes or beautiful sculptures, artists that can capture our imagination. Yet God came to an ordinary woman in an ordinary family in an ordinary village. We want the star athlete. We want the class valedictorian. We follow the social media influencer. We want successful businessmen and businesswomen. We want the creative and the innovative designers and the creative people that decorate nice. We want the talented musician. We listen to them. We don't listen to the guy who goes and fixes our plumbing at our house or the soffits in our roof. We value the extraordinary and the prestigious and expect God to act according to our standards and our expectations and act and work through the people that we desire and we value. But beware. Our scripture is telling us this morning, we miss what God is doing in our midst when we demand that God act the way we expect him to act. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, from now on, Paul is writing this because in the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul was being challenged because they said, your life is, is a hot mess, Paul. You, you don't have the credentials of somebody who is speaking for God. You suffer too much. You, you All these things, shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments, and frankly, you're kind of an ugly dude. And so Paul is saying, it's not about who I am and what I do. It's about the wisdom of God. And it says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, the the standards of the world, things that we desire and we value. Even though we were once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Lori, I'm going to knock your monitor out here. If we judge Jesus by outward appearance, we will miss the truth about him and the salvation that he brings. You must come to Jesus with faith or you will just see an ordinary carpenter from an ordinary family because you cannot see Jesus rightly without faith. How do you see Jesus, Ocean Park? Do you see and judge Jesus by faith or do you judge him by the standards of this world? Countless people, I've had many conversations about Jesus who have created all sorts of rationalizations of why the miracles of Jesus are not miraculous. He's no big deal. And they'll read through the pages. And some of you were the very people that read through the pages of Scripture until one day the light came on. And for the first time in your life, you began to read the pages by faith because of what the Spirit was doing in you. And you saw Jesus the way you had never seen him before. 
He was no, uh, not an ordinary carpenter. He was the very powerful Son of God who had came, the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and He worked. He taught us the kingdom. He laid His life down to, as, a, as a payment for our sin, and He rose again. And for the first time, you realize, that's Jesus, and I must follow Him. How do you look at Jesus? Do you look at Jesus by faith? or by stubborn rebellion and unbelief. And because Mark is telling us those who reject Jesus, and it's not just here, it's all throughout the book of Mark, those who reject Jesus will find themselves rejected by God. Unbelief blinds us to the significance of Christ, but also unbelief renders us unresponsive to God's work in salvation. This is the first time in the book of Mark where Jesus calls himself a prophet, or Mark calls him a prophet. Notice verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. Prophets were worthy of honor. Why? Because they were mouthpieces of God, speaking the wisdom and the way of God. In Capernaum, people saw him as a prophet and they scrambled to hear his teaching. Throughout Galilee, they scrambled for just the touch of his hand because they knew this man was significant. Even uh, from Judea to Jerusalem to Idumea, the crowd lavished him with honor. Everywhere he went, they wanted to be near him and hear him and listen to him and have an audience to him. Yet when he comes back to his very hometown, he is treated with suspicion and with disdain. But Jesus is not saying, you need to, to, to treat me the way I need to be treated as a prophet. Jesus is foreshadowing something that is coming. As he puts himself in the company of the prophets, the very son of man who is the final prophet, he is the prophet that Moses said, a prophet like me will come and speak the very words of God and you need to listen to him. Jesus is putting him as the final prophet in the lines of the prophet. From Moses to Isaiah, from Jeremiah to John the Baptist, they all spoke, thus saith the Lord. And in the end, nearly every single prophet, with very few exceptions, was ignored, was rejected, and was persecuted. Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, the, uh, says this, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. And what does it say? They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to them. They committed great blasphemies. Jesus is the prophetic Son of God who is, will, is coming to do the will, the work, and proclaim the Word of God. And like the prophets before him, he will be rejected. And Nazareth was the first start in that journey of rejection. That bitter rejection that not only would be in Nazareth, but would find him in Jerusalem. And Jesus would weep over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. That city that what? Kills the prophets and stones them who are sent to him. How often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Jesus longs to 
bring the, his people together and save them, but what is preventing them from coming under the, word, the wings of the Almighty God, the Messiah who has come to save his people? A stubborn, stiff-necked unbelief. Yet in the face of rejection, Jesus never wavered. He never compromised. He never went off core. His sight was set on one thing. And that was Jerusalem. The place that he knew would reject him and destroy him. But the place that was necessary was the cross. He endured the shame and the rejection of Calvary, not with bitterness, not with angst, not with, I'm going to get y'all. He endured it with joy. Why? Because he knew that he was about to accomplish salvation for all who put their faith in him. Nazareth, Nazareth, uh, Nazareth couldn't see past the, the, the fact that Jesus was not what they expected. He was too ordinary. He was too familiar. And Calvary, the cross, was too shameful and too weak. This is the very thing that God had promised ahead of time would happen. Isaiah 53, talking about this suffering servant, not this mighty king who would come, this who has believed which was heard from us. And who has uh, had the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was incredibly ordinary. Just like all the other ordinary Jewish kids of the day running around Nazareth with his brothers and his sisters and he would eat at his friend's parents' house and run around. He was ordinary, and he was despised, and he was rejected by man. A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, as one with whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The unbelieving hearts of Nazareth left them apathetic towards God's work of salvation. The suffering servant who had come to pay the penalty of his sin that his people may come back into fellowship with God, yet they found him too ordinary and too familiar, and they stood outside God's provision of salvation, his work that he was doing in their midst. Ocean Park, I ask you this. This question becomes, as we read through this, do you honor Christ for who he is, or do you take offense at him? I can't believe that you would expect me to believe that. He died. He was humiliated in the end. He was forsaken by all his friends. His mother watched him hang on the cross, naked, humiliated, spat upon, scorned, jeered. You expect me to believe that? When you call people to believe in Jesus... That's a big deal. I'll vote for somebody who's strong, wealthy, rich, prestigious, who wears, looks good in a suit or a pantsuits. I want somebody who can, I, can, I can look up to and I can appreciate not an ordinary person, not a carpenter, not a man dying naked and bloody. To honor Christ is to submit to his call to repent and believe 
on his term. To dishonor Christ is to remain in your unbelief outside God's work, provided work of salvation. We don't have to worry. Jesus didn't grow up in our church. We don't remember what Jesus was like as a little boy. But many of us, the danger is that we dishonor Christ with nostalgia. Jesus is that flannel graph from Sunday school when we were little boys and little girls. Remember that? Oh, those were the good old days when I was little. Jesus is the name that we sang in the old hymns and those old revivals from years gone by. I remember those, singing the name of Jesus. Jesus was that hollowed face when we used to flip through those illustrations in the Bible, in our family Bible. Brothers and sisters, we are coming up in one of the most dangerous seasons of unbelief. That's Christmas. Jesus becomes the holy infant so tender and mild who sleeps in heavenly peace and nothing else. He just reminds us of the good old days when all our family was together. He reminds us of the times where we had coffee and cocoa as we watched the children unwrap the gifts. When everybody was together, Jesus is really the one who made all that happen. We're sentimental and we're nostalgic. We leave Jesus there. Many of us can also recite the Christmas story from memory like Linus in the, in the Peanuts Christmas special. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, what? That all the world should be taxed. It's so familiar. We know about the angels. We know about the shepherds. We know about the wise men. We know about little baby Jesus. But if we only see Jesus as the holy infant so tender and mild who slept in heavenly peace and nothing more, we will die in unbelief apart from the salvation of God. And we will be like many in Nazareth who couldn't see Jesus as anything more than an ordinary carpenter or one, Mary's, one of Mary's kids. We, and when we see Jesus as nothing more than a baby in a manger or a Sunday school lesson that we remember when we were little boys and little girls, when we believe that kind of stuff. See, nostalgia and sentiment is unbelief. An unbelief that will slowly harden our hearts to miss out on so great a salvation. Because nostalgia doesn't give us a sense of awe as the Almighty God would step into the history of mankind or as, as um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, as the author writes himself into the story. There's no reverent fear of him because Jesus is a manageable little baby in a manger. There's no surrendering your life to your will because you are living contrary to His kingdom and your allegiance is to yourself and not to the kingdom of heaven. And there's no obedience because you set the standard. You're not worried about the baby until you want to go back and relive the good memories. Jesus is nothing to us if He's, if he's just simply nostalgia. If He is only nostalgia, He is not our Savior. 
If your heart only has fleeting sentiment for Jesus, you do not have genuine belief and faith in Him. Nostalgia is dangerous form of unbelief because it holds Jesus at a arm's length because it doesn't repent, it doesn't believe, and it doesn't follow Jesus. We just use Him to get what we want, those warm, sentimental, Hallmark movie-type feelings, and nothing more. What it does is it withholds the honor that is due Jesus as the Son of Man who has come to seek and save the lost, to redeem us from our sin, and who is good news to lost sinners. So I ask you this morning, how do you see Jesus? By faith or by nostalgia and sentiment? Countless people in churches year after year have celebrated Jesus' birth without giving Him the honor He is due, the Son of Man who accomplishes salvation for all who believes. Their nostalgic belief causes them to be unresponsive to the salvation that is worked through His life, His righteousness, His death, and His resurrection. How do you look at Jesus? Do you embrace him and honor him by faith or do you reject him by nostalgia those who reject jesus will find themselves rejected by god not only does unbelief blind us to jesus's significance does it render us unresponsive to the work of god in salvation but it also cuts us up from the 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 power of god as we close notice verse 5 and jesus could do no mighty work there doubt and suspicion and lack of faith will cut you off from the power of god like the people of nazareth will cut off from the mighty works of god in jesus it's not that jesus was unable to do that because prosperity preachers will say if you just have a little bit more faith that miracle is going to come and they'll point to this text and they say see they didn't have enough faith they need to muster up a little uh, you know, know-how, a little faith, a little more belief. They need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and the blessings will come. It's not the case. Because Jesus, it's not about ability. It's about his will. He doesn't wring his hands and say, geez, I, I sure wish that I could help them, but they don't have the minimum amount of faith. There's nothing I could do. He doesn't need to go ask his manager. He doesn't need to get uh, um, Congress's approval. He isn't restrained by antiquated laws and rules. The God of the universe doesn't need our permission or our buy-in to accomplish his will. The psalmist says, the Lord is in heaven. He does as he pleases. So what's going on in this text? The people of Nazareth didn't receive the mighty works of God because their hearts were hard and closed to Jesus. St. Augustine uses the example of the relationship between faith and the power of God is like a wine bottle with an open mouth or an open top lid. Unbelief is a cork which prevents the power of God or the good wine of God from flowing into the bottle. God will not watch, stand by as his power is wasted on the ground. Faith is a necessary component for the power of God to flow through His people. Let's check that by what we've already seen in Mark. The leper had to come to Jesus and say, if you are willing, Jesus, you will heal me. 
What is he saying? I know you can. The paralytic and his four friends, when they got to the alleyway and the alleyway was full, had to fight through the crowd. And when they realized the house was full, they had to get to the roof. And they realized they were on the roof and Jesus was inside. They had to fight through and dig through the roof and lower Jesus down. Why? Because they had faith that Jesus could heal them. Jairus last week had to come actually several thousand years ago, but we talked about it last week, had to come at the feet of Jesus and say, my little girl is sick. The woman who was bleeding had to quietly and stealthily work through the crowd to be able to touch Jesus. Those who come to Jesus by faith will receive the infusing, life-giving, soul-saving power. He will not pour out his power on hearts that are cold and hard and unresponsive because of unbelief. God, or I should say, Jesus is not a trick pony. He's not a dancing monkey. He's not a street performer looking for tips. God's power is not subject to your beck and call. If you can just muster up enough good feeling and enough enough faith. Um, Calvin puts it this way. He puts it this way, undoubtedly in the, this is the case, for when the Lord perceives that his power is not accepted by us, he at length withdraws it, and yet we complain that we are deprived of his aid, which our unbelief rejects and drives far from us. He came to his own, and his own did not believe him. The people at Nazareth only saw Jesus as a carpenter. He was only the son of Mary. He was just another kid that had grown up in the village and moved away and had come back for visits. If Jesus were less ordinary and more unique and prestigious, they would have believed. Humanity, and one of the commentators as we close, I don't have it, let me read it to you. Humanity wants something other than what God gives. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us as a carpenter, as the son of Mary. God has worked. God has acted. How do you know that God loves you? He sent his son so that you may not die in the just penalty of your sin but may have life. This week we taught the children about hell. The worst part of hell, about hell is not the fire, it's not the flames. The worst thing about hell is separation from God. And then the best thing about heaven is not the streets of gold. Those are going to be pretty cool. It's not the fact that I can be with my loved ones. That's going to be awesome. The best thing about heaven is that I'm going to be with Jesus. And that is wonderful. This morning, Ocean Park, as you begin to see Jesus, the question will be, will you continue in unbelief? Or will you come to Christ in faith that you may be saved? Will you repent and believe today? If you haven't, it would be my joy to tell you what it means to follow Jesus, to repent of your sin and follow him with your life. 
and for all of us who have been following Jesus to say, I repent and believe again today because Jesus is my only hope in life and death. Will you say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid rock, fierce through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Will you say, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. My sin here in the depth, death of Christ, I live. How do you answer? Is Jesus just too ordinary? Or is he the righteous son of God? He is the good news. He is my only hope in life and death. 